0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia.
1: Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
2: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne on the Community Radio Network and podcasts which can be found on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. My name is Carleen. Today, I'll be sharing the expert panel discussions from the Climate and Health Alliance, CAHA, on climate change and mental health. The event was facilitated by CAHA President Dr Rebecca Patrick, a senior lecturer in the School of Health and Social Development of Deakin University. As a practicing psychologist, I've noticed anecdotally and with the data, the increase of climate change related mental health distress. I really hope you enjoy and get something out of this.
3: It's a real pleasure to be here tonight to discuss such an important topic. Um, It's been sort of living in the shadows, I think for a little while, but people are really starting to sit up and and take notice that our um, social and emotional wellbeing or mental health is really being significantly impacted by, um, by climate change. So back in 2018, we saw uh, um, and around that time, we saw some really interesting and really still very important um, discussion papers. Um, the lead author um, uh, was Helen Berry and um, she really sort of started to think about mental health and climate change, many aspects of it, but particularly, you um, Pointing out that this is a complex relationship. Um, Mental health is always a a complex issue that is um, underpinned and impacted by many, many factors. But when you add climate change into the mix, it becomes even... Um, more impossibly um, complex network. And she's tried to sort of hypo- hypothetically um, map out what that might look like. Um, and what she's quite successfully done there in a really nice, um, succinct way is um, get us to think that we, um, climate change is expected to impact mental health. We know that now from the evidence, which I'll show on the next slide but via a range of direct and indirect pathways, and also some existential kind of threat um, aspects as well, which will get talked about, no doubt, by other panelists. Um, So some of these direct pathways are the obvious ones, such as um, a bushfire sweeps through and a population is traumatised, or or a cyclone or or flood or whatever um, weather-related event that might be. Seems like a fairly linear process. So this is um, uh, Helen Berry's attempt to hypothetically kind of map out a system in which the mental health impacts of climate change might kind of operate. And of course, um, there's many direct and indirect pathways that are taking place there. The key message being this is a very, very complex um, system. So what do we know? Helen Berry has done a beautiful job of of discussion papers, which have been very thought provoking. And the next step is actually to build some evidence around this through research. So we set out as a a starting point in a very new and emerging field, research field, um, to do a systematic review around looking at the uh, mental health impacts of climate change. And we discovered many things. Firstly, that um, there's not much research done in the space, Um, but what is clear is that um, uh, weather-related events or or climate change-related events are definitely having an impact on mental health. Some of the um, um, things that, uh, sorry, environmental exposures um, that have been shown, through research um, to have an impact on a range of mental health outcomes are temperature or heat, um, in particular, humidity, which we may not think about, drought and um, rainfall, um, wildfire, bushfire, we all know about that in Australia, and floods, we also know about that in Australia. Um, In terms of the kinds of mental health outcomes, because there are a, a wide range of sort of definitions here, symptomology of mental disorders, so not necessarily a mental disorder per se, but symptomology that might indicate that someone um, is heading that way. Um, Such things as um, psychological distress measured by a um, bunch of different tools, psychiatric hospitalizations have gone up, mortality among people with mental illness has gone up, and um, self-harm and suicide has also uh, gone up. So, what we know about climate change more broadly, but particularly when we're talking about health impacts, is that it doesn't uh, impact everyone um, to the same extent. So the literature has identified some um, vulnerable populations and for sure this won't be the, the um, you know, a, a limited um, uh, list the evidence will develop and we will uncover um, other groups as we go. But those with pre-existing, uh, pre-existing mental illness are particularly impacted. Um, examples of, of why that might be is people who are on antipsychotics, for example, have um, reduced ability to thermoregulate during uh, heat waves. Um, the world's indigenous populations are experiencing a loss of place um, through rising sea levels or melting um, sea ice, um, and their hunting and um, uh, activity, land-based activities are also being impacted. Um, that's just a few examples of how they're being impacted. Lower-middle-income com- countries are being um, disproportionately affected, and of particular relevance here in Australia are our neighbouring small island developing states. Um, you know, what comes to mind immediately is uh, inundation, as you can see in the, in the picture there. And another group is young people, and I know that I'm not gonna spend much time on that because I know that other panelists are going to do so. So I presented what we do know, but the fact is that we there is a lot more that we don't know. So today, more than 80% of, of research in this field explores the mental health impacts of climate change. They're so trying to work out what um, uh, is actually and by how much is our mental health being impacted by climate change, but actually we really have a poor understanding of which factors increase our vulnerability and or our resilience to the mental health impacts of climate change, very little research related to interventions or policies designed to safeguard us. Um, So importantly, research will assist decision makers to develop robust evidence-based mitigation and adaptation plans. Um, and in summary, tackling climate change could actually be the most significant opportunity to shape our mental health for centuries to come because of the um, health co benefits of transitioning to more sustainable ways of living.
2: So you've given us the science and the best available evidence. Uh, We have an understanding now of who our priority groups are. And we also um, uh, understand to some extent the impacts of climate change, how it's manifesting in the mental health space. But you've also highlighted for us, Fiona, that there's knowledge gaps particularly around uh, where and we should make our investments for interventions and I suppose what we're now going to hear from from the panel uh, is some of the case studies um, of clinical and community practice Um, so some of the um, anecdotal lived experience as well so we're going to start with Sabelle Uh, you have a particular interest in child and adolescent psychiatry as per the bio we introduced you with can you tell us about how you are seeing mental youth health being impacted
4: by climate change Um, climate change is already impacting mental health of children and young people in Australia today Um, and in terms of the things that I'm seeing as a child and adolescent psychiatrist and through looking at the literature um, extreme weather events and hotter weather are examples that are quite clearly having impact on children and young people here as well as the impact of children and young people being worried about climate change based on realistic concerns about what's going to happen. So a recent survey showed that more than 50% of children and teenage, or 16 to 25 year olds, so teenagers and young adults were extremely or very worried about climate change. And in terms of coming back to those impacts of climate change through other methods, um, other pathways, Um, If you think about exposure to extreme weather events, a six-year-old today uh, will live through three times as many extreme weather events as their grandparents, and that's recently published data in Science. Um, In terms of what I'm seeing, the other thing that I'm seeing is the increases in presentations, which as I've put in the chat, had happened before the impacts of the climate pandemic, sorry, not the climate pandemic, of the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Uh, thanks, Sabelle. So I heard in that, kids heat and worry about realistic concerns, and it's it's real and it's now. Thanks, Sabelle. We'll come back to you shortly. Uh, Carol, you have been working with climate activists and others in this space. Can you tell us a bit about how their mental health is impacted by working on climate issues?
5: Um, yes, we work with climate activists. We also work with those who are working in the space of climate change as researchers, or uh, academics, or policy makers, or scientists. And um, we have noticed um, in our work, we offer supportive workshops to people, which I'll talk about a bit later, but uh, we have noticed that they're feeling an intense weight of the work they're doing, um, and that that's increasing, of, of course, and especially with the build up to the Glasgow conference. Um, Much of the feeling that they carry is um, an aspect of grief, um, deep sadness, anger at the um, lack of action, despair, despair that often expresses not wanting to have children. Um, Sometimes it's numbness, sometimes it's um, uh, depression. Uh, We just notice in general people are exhausted and the concern is that they're that people are increasingly isolated from um, often from their peers and from their friends as they work intensely on this this topic. Um, That there's often, often, um, as we discover, as they talk about things in the the workshops that there's actually lack of balance in their lives and um, little little or no opportunity for the expression of the feelings that they carry, um, which of course leads to more isolation. and that's the intensity of the work, of the course, is increasing because they know time's running out.
2: Thanks, Carol. So there's an experience of intense weight, they're shouldering a, a large responsibility. There's uh, experiences of grief, sadness, anger and despair. And often there's no, uh, no outlet for that and, and a sense of isolation. We will circle back uh, to the great work uh, of Psychology for a Safe Climate and how you're supporting uh, practitioners, scientists and the other groups that you mentioned uh, shortly. Before I do, uh share a question with Alan. You've worked with populations who are particularly vulnerable to the mental health impacts of climate change. Can you tell us who these populations are and what factors are contributing to this vulnerability?
0: I can. <clears throat> but. I um i'm I'm in absolute awe about how people can be that concise. so excuse me if I ramble a little but look i the, the main issues um here about high priority um um populations and I think we're using that preferably to talking about just vulnerable people because we're looking at a strengths rather than a deficit oriented language. so uh, let's see if we can stick with that although we know that there are risks as well as, as strengths um, that we should be considering. The people who are most likely to be um, affected first and worst with um, climate change events are, are going to be those with social determinants gaps. So people who live in abject poverty, so they have no choice about where they live, where you, you might be have, have to live on a floodplain, plain, with close to sea rise, fire grounds, excessive temperatures, Poor quality food or scarce food, and, and running out of water supply. Um, <clears throat> if you live in unstable housing, if you are unemployed or a casual worker with a a, a, um, a job that is uh, um, fragile or or um, <clears throat> like a constantina in terms of the shifts you get. If you have, <clears throat> if you're in any community who who is likely to be marginalised or alienated, like young people, elderly, disabled including um, those with serious and persistent mental illness and those who are traumatised, Indigenous, and people who are in prison. Um, So Indigenous and in prison too often go together. Asylum seekers and refugees. So, but if you are already living with a severe and complex mental illness, um, then, and you, um, have homelessness or crowded housing and you find these extremes in both urban and in the most remote settings um, then you may have what i've termed a quintuple whammy and uh, people have heard of about a double a double whammy but this is a quintuple one and i can count to five because i've had a quintuple bypass so i know how to count to five. First part of that is having a se- severe and persistent mental illness secondly if you have uh, and alcohol and, and drug addiction disorder. Thirdly, if you have physical illness and disability, um, like a diabetes or, or a cardiovascular um, disorder, which can be worsened by some of the medications you might have to take. And if you have social determinant factors like the poverty, the unstable and uncoolable housing, the, um, the being unemployed, being overcrowded where you're living, Um, and being incarcerated in psychiatric institutions. Some Aboriginal people, for instance, say that they were colonised twice, once by British invasion and secondly, by the psychiatric or the prison system. Um, You could be also the last of the five factors are being alienated, marginalised, stigmatised and politically neglected group by the the wider society.
2: You promised a a longer speech and I was a little bit surprised. (laughs) fabulous let Thank me you. go <laughs> congratulations look uh so what you've um set us up in understanding there is using a strengths approach uh when talking about uh priority populations um that the mental health outcomes of the uh, impacts of climate change are mediated by the social determinants of health um the quintuple whammy hopefully i've said that right um you've you've outlined colonisation and also um, the fifth point uh, I didn't quite capture because I was so engrossed but what was it Alan?
0: Uh, Being alienated or marginalised or stigmatised and politically neglected.
2: Thank you. Okay, Georgia, as a young person now working on planetary health, what has been your experience of climate change and mental health?
6: Thanks, Rebecca. And yeah, I'm honored to have this opportunity today to share my perspective as a young person working in the climate health space. Um, just a disclaimer, I will be referencing the impact of bushfires. So feel free to turn your volume off if that you find this triggering. Um, I guess my first memory of when climate change impacted my mental health um, was when I was roughly 12 years old. I It was Saturday, the 7th of Feb 2009, um, when the radio announced that change in wind direction and the head of that Black Saturday bushfire was heading straight for the town of Marysville, uh, where my family's holiday cottage was situated and although I probably didn't label it climate change at that time, I knew that my life, which some people may call a privileged one, and that is one with a roof over my head, access to ed- education and a stable, stable family income, I was susceptible to the to the changes happening to our planet and to our home. Um, And I remember a few days later, as I saw the satellite images of the scarred town, I just felt feelings of shock um, and suddenly felt very small. So fast forwarding nine years later to the black summer bushfire season in 2020, I don't consider myself to be affected by these fires as I wasn't physically there. But however, like many of us, I was absolutely devastated by the loss of bushland and innocent wildlife. So I guess my point is that it's, no matter how old you are, or where you live, how much money you have um, or how far, far away we think we are to the problem, we're all indirectly and directly impacted by climate change in big and small ways. And as a young person with majority of their life, hopefully still to be lived on this planet, I am concerned. Um, I am concerned about the lack of action, the lack of conversation and an urgency among all population groups, including my own in dealing with something so detrimental to our lives. And my greatest fear is that I have no answer for when my future children ask me, well, why didn't you do or say something, mum, when you knew it would affect me? Um, that's my biggest fear, I think, and therefore my biggest motivation in working in this space. So my role now as planetary health project officer at Enliven, it's given me the opportunity to play my part and do my little bit in turning things around. And that makes me feel empowered and hopeful for the future. Um, and I only wish for the same opportunities for other young people. Thanks,
2: Georgia. I think I possibly speak on behalf of the panel and other audience members in Thanking you for sharing your response and sharing um, some of your journey um, and and sharing your fears and concerns in a public forum, Um, very brave and and, and courageous and certainly very generous and I know that you're doing some fantastic work in the field uh, at Enliven and we're looking forward to hearing more about some of the work that's happening um, with your great organisation, so thank you again. Okay, Uh, Tamara. Our final respondent to to this 1st kickoff question. Uh, You are a clinical psychologist and president of the APS. What you're seeing in your practice, uh, what are the takeaways for psychologists and mental health workers more
1: broadly? So um, from my point of view in terms of what I'm seeing, it's that climate change is coming up increasingly often. I think probably five years ago it wouldn't have been a topic that I saw in my practice room but i'm starting to see that there is people across the entire lifespan who are impacted by this in some way and it's almost been advanced by um, the pandemic in the backdrop of that because we've had for the first time widespread and um, worldwide uncertainty about the future Um, but also that concept that you know in the event that there is a large problem it might not just be fixed overnight and so i think that that has really brought into question a lot of people's thoughts on what mattered and a lot of people's thoughts on it'll all just be okay. Um, So for psychologists and what to take away, I think a huge one um, is that we need to get upskilled in uh, cumulative trauma because that is certainly something we are going to see in an ongoing basis and certainly in Australia, um, that is one area where I just don't think we're going to get away from it. There's also uh, really upskilling in areas of uncertainty and anxiety therapy skills I think that that has huge um, elements to play in terms of what we offer and what our skill base is, because that is such a huge part of what we're seeing. Um, and then I also think there's a huge advocacy role for psychologists so um, very few people actually recognize that the science of psychology is actually pivotable, uh, pivotal In large scale behavior change and in public health messaging so we often think just of the therapist in a room, but it is much broader than that when we're talking about wide scale change.
2: What is cumulative trauma um, to support um, our, our audience in understanding.
1: yeah so cumulative trauma is those repeated major significant events in a person's life, and I think you know, if we just did the last couple of years, we came out of bushfire, well, out of drought, into bushfires, out of bushfires, into a worldwide pandemic, then into lockdowns, then hopefully out of lockdowns. So if you actually um, look at what those um, repeated massive and significant changes to a lot of people, it is literally cumulatively traumatic. So it's about um, as psychologists and mental health workers, how we actually work with the fact that these are now starting to be ongoing traumas and climate change is a huge part of that.
2: Thanks that's a great explanation. So you're saying Tamara in the last five years we've seen an uptick in um, people presenting uh, a, a around this issue and that you're calling for upskilling around uh, cumulative trauma, developing therapy skills and also the really important role um, of uh, advocacy uh, as well for, for psychologists and mental health workers. Let's unpick it uh, and tussle with it and, and dive a little bit deeper. Uh, but also bring forward uh, some of the clinical and community examples. So it would be great to hear more from our panelists now about their experience in the clinical or community setting uh, where the issue of climate change and mental health uh, has arisen. So it's back to you to talk about um, the the clinical practice experiences. Sure,
4: thank you very much, um, Rebecca. When you look at all the research is that both the health professionals, but also other adults that um, people go to with their climate distress are informed about climate and mental health. So great that people are here and and a really good step. So in terms of the clinical and community settings, I have one, which is that I, I work in telehealth and have been working since 2012 with rural and remote clinicians. And I've just been really struck by the number of experienced mental health clinicians who've spoken of the rises in serious self-harm and suicide attempts in in younger children and also in adolescents, and that for many of these clinicians, this is a really striking difference from what it was like 20 years ago. Um, And I I think that's that's something that certainly stays with me and, and did lead me to be particularly wanting to understand the research better. The other one I wanted to touch on is a more recent one which is really a mixture of of kind of hope and also concern which is a nine-year-old boy whose family gave me permission to present um, what is a very abbreviated version of his story Um, but he was I saw again through telehealth with his parents and his local um, mental health clinician who is a psychologist uh, just on the topic. Um, And he presented actually with compound events. So the cumulative trauma is relevant. Um, He was a boy who had been happily going to school, did have some other neurodevelopmental difficulties, but was functionally sleeping well, enjoying life, not really having any significant difficulties with the supports that he had. And then in the rural setting, the Black Summer fires came, 2019-2020, and his dad went out to be a volunteer firefighter. Um, and he, even though his dad came back safely, the experience of having the black, thick black smoke and the repeated experience of not knowing where his dad was was extremely stressful. And after that, he had clear post-traumatic stress disorder and was unable to get to school or be separated from his parents. He then made some really good progress with excellent support from his parents, their community and their local psychologist and was doing well when the floods came and one of his best friends, the best friend it's okay I'm trying to manage what trauma I'm exposing people to but they were animals that were lost in the floods, the people were physically okay, But the level of distress that this caused for this boy was really very significant. And he again became unable to go to school, unable to separate from his parents, and actually was struggling with eating. Again, they bounced back, they got help, things got better. He was doing relatively well. And then the lockdowns related to COVID came. And while we could get into debates about the extent to which pandemics are more likely, certainly infectious diseases are more likely, regardless of that, the impact of those clearly increased events with climate change, so extreme bushfires and floods, meant that this boy was then much more vulnerable when another significant stressor occurred. And so he was actually lying, unable to do anything um, in the fetal position on on the floor of the room when he presented to the clinician. And this is a little boy who'd been happily going to school. Now, on the optimistic side, he and his community and his family have enormous strengths. And I actually think that he will benefit enormously and make great progress with the help that he'll get but what he's been through and the vulnerability that that leaves him and his family with is really significant and something that I think it's really important that we're here talking about tonight so thank you and I'm sorry I've gone a bit over
2: time thanks for sharing that and um, and to the parents who are too willing to um, pass that on as a clinical example Over to Carol to talk about some of the clinical and community uh, practice examples.
5: I just want to raise an example of uh, burnout, which is um, an issue that we've come across in our work. um, People who are particularly working on the kind of crisis and contributing enormously to the action that's an activity that's needed to press for what's needed, but um, they are at risk of. Um, suffering burnout. And if you think about somebody riding a bike without the tyres pumped up, how much effort goes into sort of keeping that bike moving without the air in the tyres? And that's an analogy for thinking about what it's like to, to keep on working in this space and contributing so much to something so important when there's actually um, there's no uh, back, background um, reserves of, of energy. Another example is, a way of thinking about it is thinking about a car with um, the accelerator um, pressed as well as a brake, um, and that burns out the engine. And for people it's about them pressing themselves, trying to accelerate, do more and more, while at the same time, they're accused about slowing down that are being ignored. And look, this is a really serious problem, it takes a very long time to recover from. Um, I've heard of people talking about of spending months in bed, or it's taking a whole year out of their lives just to sort of almost do nothing to just restore the capacity. So it's something that um, I think really needs to be thought about for those who are, are contributing so much please also listen to the cues of your colleagues and also care for themselves. And the other as- aspect, if you think about it in a clinical sense, is, um, um, is to think about the stress that is caused in relationships around. COVID and that we can think about that sort of tension occurring around, you know, the tension about vaccination that can cause tensions in friendships, tensions in couple relationships, tensions in families and similarly climate change can have that sort of tension um, impact on on people in their lives and so it's very similar and need.
2: Uh, for commenting or drawing the picture of um, burnout that um, some of our colleagues are experiencing and um, and the, the cascading impact for, for their lives as they um, dedicate themselves to, to addressing uh, climate change impacts. So thanks, Carol. We will circle back to you um, again soon uh, to hear about some of the work that Psychology for a Safe Climate is doing to, to support um, workers. Alan over to you um to tell us a little bit more about perhaps the community setting
0: the community i'd like to address is are uh, the small com- communities with aboriginal majorities in the far west of of uh, new south wales which i've um known well over the last 35 years even um, while i was heading the service in royal North shore hospital in sydney so um which i did also for 30 years so um and i'm uh, so I've continuously, I've stayed involved with this, uh, um, with these communities, but um, the worrying thing um, is that, and again, I've put this in a, a strength um, rather than a deficit frame, that, that so much was achieved by Aboriginal communities um, in the first 16 months of this pandemic, in terms of there, there being no deaths, deaths, hardly anyone in ICU. And now already um, with this uh, Delta outbreak, there have been at least three deaths in Western New South Wales, and we don't know how many there are to come in the far West um, with the consequences of having um, towns like um, Wilcannia um, having the highest rate of, um, of COVID um, positive um, testing in a population anywhere in Australia. Um, and there's a there's a large, uh, but only recent effort that has gone into that town. So what what actually happens in towns like this? Well, they the, the why they are um, in a sense their communities become sitting ducks for for any um, uh, climate related crisis. Partly because first of all, um, and um, going on from from what Tamara said about um cumulative crises they're also sometimes called compound crises and domino crises and what we've had there um, the sequence of prolonged drought you saw this in the in the in the all the issues that arose around the Murray-Darling system and um the loss of 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 water the loss of of uh, fish the loss of hunting because of the drought these droughts were 10 years at a time and then there's a short respite and then it started again and we had another Nine or ten years. So then there was the drought, the extreme fires, the particulate matter ingesting and choking, smoke and floods that comes back to what uh, um, Sibel was saying, um, and then now the pandemic, and uh, it's you know it seems like biblical plagues, complete with locusts and mice now, but this is the this sort of pattern where you you don't have time to recoil before you're knocked over again, um, is really um, very um traumatizing and resensitizing to the trauma you've already had as fiona was saying We also need to look at um communities that are stigmatized and neglected where governments have dropped the ball on on uh, vaccination yet they're ready to op- open up and expose them to the virus while aboriginal vax rates are so low in australia-wide the aboriginal longevity gap that we know about of 10 to 15 years has now been met and negatively synergized by the 20% vaccination gap. Anywhere in Australia, the, the, Australia, the uh, Aboriginal um, rates of vaccination are about 20% lower uh, than, the, the, than this, the, the, the common one in their state. Then there's overcrowding of households, nowhere to isolate, um, uh, you know, and, and there's no, nowhere to isolate that was provided in some of these townships until after the virus had bolted. In other words, they were already living, trying to live in tents or trying to live in a crowded household in a corner, um, and it took them. It took a long while for for governments that had had, had um, neglected to fix housing or to provide more housing for many years, and in many very short-term schemes that were never followed up. Um, and running out of fresh water and fresh protein there's hardly uh, and the food is very expensive and it's not fresh loss of fishing and hunting which did provide fresh protein and um and there's little food security altogether and then there's the the, the positive of the attachment of land no matter how much it may be, become degraded by heat or drought and um you have, you have a loss of ways to draw on your strengths and collective identity if you don't stay attached to land in the collective community. So at the same time, it, these are also protective factors and they operate for Indigenous people. And the strengths include collectivist communities. Um, so they, they need to meet and see the, 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 the wider kinship um, system and community. So they meet mainly at, at funerals, unfortunately, and for, more fortunately at football. But of course, if they run out of uh, of uh, petrol money because they can't get a job, a pastoral job in the drought, um, that means they can't get to these major cultural events or cultural proxies. Um, however, they talk about their resilience and teaching, they they are able to teach the wider community how to make holistic practical responses to climate change because they've been through it before in very many ways. They've been through there so many crises um, of this kind that they, they feel we survived that, we're going to survive this. So there are strengths there that we can we could all learn from.
2: Georgia, responding to um, the community setting.
6: Yeah, sure. So at Inlaven, we are quite active in the food system space. So we know that food insecurity or food shortages um, have a negative impact on all aspects of our health um, and has risen throughout the pandemic and will continue to increase as our climate changes and population increases. Um, at, at Enliven we currently run a social marketing campaign called Food from Home where we promote the climate and health co-benefits of edible gardening um, and the campaign concept and key messaging was informed by a community insight survey and um, the findings from this survey alluded to the main reasons why people grow food and mental health was um, the top reason with environmental um, reasons as a close second. So. I mean, this just adds the abundance of evidence that's already out there that links nature with mental health, mental well-being. Um, And so food insecurity is a prevalent issue um, amongst our um, catchment area in Melbourne Southeast, um, with many families from a refugee and migrant background that have a low socioeconomic um, status as well. Um, However, we found that when that these people, this population, do have access to the space and resources to grow their own food, then this becomes a mental health promoting activity. Also further to this in the food system space um, is the rapid urbanisation happening in Melbourne Southeast Growth Corridor, and it's putting quite a physical um, and mental strain on um, our farmers. So housing estates are being built quite close to neighbouring farmland. Um, and this farmland is the home to, you know, one of Melbourne's major food bowls, located in the Cardinia Shire. Um, and so farmers are losing their ability to farm the way they used to. So, for example, there's changes in rules in using machinery or lights late at night to avoid disruption to local residents. So, um, you know, this is putting a mental burden on top of the strain that climate change and the effect of drought or other extreme weather events are already having on our farmers.
2: Thanks, Georgia and a nod there to the co-benefits of uh, growing food uh, to promote mental health and being part of um, part of a climate action I would call growing your own food maybe it's a little bit of fun that people might um, drop in the uh, drop uh, sorry chat box what they're growing at the moment um, as a way to 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 um, connect to connect with that Tamara can you tell us about a clinical practice example
1: Sure, so I'll um, sort of go across it broadly. So um, certainly the most concerning area at the moment is trauma related to extreme weather events. So I've had um, lots of people that have presented um, from being on the front line in the bushfires or family affected by them, um, including people who are struggling to leave their house because they're concerned that a fire might happen um, and they won't be there um, to protect themselves or their families. I've, In terms of droughts, I've seen men who've spent their entire lives working on their family farm um, only to enter their retirement with no money in debt because um, the drought has taken much of um, what they had planned for their future. I've seen a broad array of people presenting with anxiety around climate change so um, people considering whether or not they want to do parenthood as a result of what it might mean to bring a child into the world. Um, Anxiety around how to talk to their children about what happened in terms of major weather events or climate change when questions come up. I've seen adolescents who are angry over what previous generations have done um, and how they will be the ones that will be impacted by the choices of someone else. And um, certainly all of those people who've been impacted by uncertainty, financial change, life changes and PTSD as a result of it. So. For me it's very broad ranging and um, I think someone put in the chat box it's not a typical assessment question, but it probably should be because it's increasingly going to be something that we see and have to manage.
2: Thanks Tamara, and you're pointing us uh, to the way forward there by um, prefacing that maybe assessment question is uh, one instrument that we can add to our toolkit in um, developing our our practice and, and like you said before, upskilling. Fiona, a right of reply um, before we swap out to the the solutions and the hope and coping uh, type questions.
3: Thanks um, Rebecca, so I've heard some really um, Great comments that have really resonated with me from from the other panelists and and particularly love um, Alan's description of how complex this system is operating. It's not just, uh, you know, there's so many factors at at play here which are um, contributing to a, a community or a population's mental health always working in public health always sort of take the the population or the community's community wide wide view and um, I just wanted to give an example very quickly I know um, you don't want me to ramble but we're we're doing some work out in in Stanthorpe in um, Queensland it's about three hours west of Brisbane for those people who are not from Queensland. Um, Stanthorpe has been, um, it, it's a rural area. It's got a, a quite a sizeable town, but it is a predominantly an agricultural area, wine, um, fruit and other sort of more traditional crops, as, as well as livestock. It has been, it was the first, one of the first places in Australia to be impacted by the 2019 bushfires. But prior to that, it's been in drought currently for about 10 years. Um, I was speaking to, uh, um, the, uh, sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, then there were the bushfires, the bu- bushfires moved south and it was just covered in this blanket of smoke for months and months, which pretty much just finished any crops that were surviving. So it also in that area nearby has had floods, it's just been absolutely decimated and that town is is under enormous, enormous stress, but the stakeholders that we're talking to out there that uh, we're consulting with we're talking to people who are farmers we're talking to people who are from schools we're talking to council and the whole spectrum and every all what they are telling us is a very complex story of how people um, are being impacted by mental health so every time one of these events comes through it doesn't just cause trauma which is is clear to an individual it degrades the social fabric of a community, economically, politically, socially, on on many, environmentally, obviously, everything is kind of raised to the ground and they have to rebuild. And they're just not getting time to rebuild like they used to. We would have a cyclone come through. I mean, our childhood was was natural disasters, was, was cyclones up in North Queensland or the occasional bushfire that made the news. It's not like that anymore. It's this cumulative trauma and cumulative events that people have identified. Communities don't know what they're, how to plan. Farmers don't know how to plan. The person I spoke to today said he used to work on a three to four year cycle, knowing that he would get bad years and good years within that. Now it's a 10 year cycle. So um, I just guess the takeaway message is that this is very complex. It's operating within a very complex system.
2: Thanks Fiona and I know that you're doing some system science uh, which is a community participatory research approach um, and we really value and look forward to to the the stories that arise from the research that you're doing up there. Thank you. All right let's get into the hope and coping space uh, with a question to all of our panellists. So I'd like to ask each of our panel members to tell us about some of the resources, the supports, and approaches that are available to the audience uh, on. Sibel, short, sharp overview of the solutions and resources. Thank you very
4: much. Something I'd like to comment on particularly first is the importance of self-care. And I know other speakers have covered this more than me, but it, it's just so important to look after your own well-being in order. Um, because, because you matter and because it's the right thing to do anyway, and because by doing that, you are then in a position to take effective action and to help others. Um, So just that remembering about putting your own oxygen mask on first. And in terms of resources for that, um, some of the speakers here have already been talking about that. Psychology for a Safe Climate has some wonderful resources in terms of information and things that you can talk about with help you talk to your children about and things like that. The Australian Psychological Society has lots of resources. Um, The Climate Resilience Network also has resources. And I'm imagining there are others, but if you Google any of them, you will get a bunch of of readily available resources to help you and your community Um, in terms of working with um, patients in a clinical setting for individual patients. The important things are that people who are experiencing um, distress about climate change need to have that distress validated and to meet with people who understand that being distressed about such a serious problem as climate change can be a rational and um, appropriate response and that the way that you respond to that is based on um, validating, understanding and encouraging the person to t- take the kind of action that's likely to help them manage that distress, such as things like connecting with nature um, and it's important that people's normal and appropriate or well, not normal because it's not a normal situation, but rational and appropriate distress is understood in that context. having said that sometimes people will have such sustained distress or such lack of relief from it that they develop clinically significant mental health disorders and sometimes it's happening in terms of extreme weather events or in terms of heat and the many other complex impacts and then they need access to mental health professionals who can provide appropriate support Um, and again great that people are here because that's part of what's going to help that support be a good fit is for people to be informed about mental health and climate change. And in terms of services, there are a whole lot of things to be doing. Some of that is discussed in that report that you'll be getting But we do need to be planning for these increases in temperature, the associated increases in people being having significant mental health distress, including suicidal behaviour, and actually also the consequences of interpersonal violence, which do increase with increasing hot weather and humidity. And the other part that I just want to mention, and then I will, will go, is just that actually speaking up as a community member or as a health professional is really important. And certainly as a health professional, part of your um, responsibility is to speak up where there's a serious threat to health. Um, And I think that that's part of probably why some of us are here tonight. Um, And one of the things that we know is that one of the sources of distress uh, for people, particularly young people, is seeing that there's not um, proportionate sufficient action being taken by governments over a long period of time. So actually seeing leaders and seeing professionals stepping up and calling for that action is likely to be a step in the right direction of relieving some of that distress. As well as what we need to be calling for to reduce the harms going forward from climate change through legislation.
2: Bell, you've um, a very compelling response uh, to that question and gave us a really broad brush, rational and appropriate response. I've double underlined here, and proportional and uh, a proportional response is required, uh, which we don't quite have um, for, from the government at this point in time. Fiona, can you share? Um, some very quick examples of interventions to mitigate
3: the mental health impacts of climate change. Interventions. So I'm, I'm a um, public health researcher. So when I I sort of look at community based um, population based interventions, I think there's lots of people on the call today who can kind of talk to the more individual clinical um, type interventions. Um, to be honest, there, there is. <laughs> There's not a lot that we know about community-based interventions to deal with the mental health impacts of climate change. There's lots been tried. There's lots of um, trying to adapt to what we used to do in terms of like disaster recovery, for example. Um, there's lots of people still trying to do fit the old model to the new, new context. And that's just not going to cut it anymore. It's very, very clear that you can't just. Um, you know, dump a, a bunch of um, resources into somewhere after a bushfire and um, re- rebuild it, and then wait another five years before they, or 10 years before they need any more help. That doesn't work anymore. So in terms of um, interventions, I don't have a lot of, of great advice to give, because we just don't really know. There's a lot of people trying to do really good things. But I think we need to really look and evaluate and research what we really need to be doing.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Fiona. I think there is some incredible work underway. It hasn't got to the level of the evidence base. Um, oh. And Um, I'm certainly aware um, of some of the work in Victoria. I can't speak to to, um, the rest of Australia, but the health promotion public health space is really getting activated, and there's various mandates now in place really guiding that work uh, in the health promotion public health space. Alan, what approaches should we take to assist communities, most priority communities, uh, to the mental health impacts of climate change?
0: I think we need to fit, uh, set uh, an optimal balance between public health and mental health prevention, early intervention, clinical clinical mitigation and amelioration, and the wider things that uh, both Fiona and others and I have been talking about. And that is, as, as clinicians, we should not stop um, there because of our toilet training and maintaining our narrow clinical gaze and focus and coming up with clinical diagnoses and solutions it's just like having a you know for he who has a hammer everything is a nail it's not like that we need to uh, widen our skills so um we and we also need local familiar service providers from your cultural mob who are therefore trusted and better able to communicate effectively and be role models Um, and that means not just having telehealth but we need that um, balance between digitally augmented services, but having people who do people-to-people work and also you know, face-to-face work and also do assertive outreach to people in their home as they as as needed. And also um, this this is also a cultural thing because in Aboriginal communities or in um, um, work that was done in British Columbia with um, First Nations people, um, by Challenge uh, 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 and Lalonde, if um, you make sure that people from that cultural group also have roles within the fire department, the police department, not just not just health and schooling, um, but in all all the community um, facilities and institutions, it actually makes helps for people to trust them, and there's a lower suicide rate. And that's that's before you get into climate change. But of course, when when you're making a climate change response, it's even more important and then we we've got to sustain ongoing mental health services including community outreach as i was saying but 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 we need that that telehealth connection but we can't just um do that management terms pivot thing completely to telehealth and think we don't need familiar local people on the ground so then we need social movements and facilitating of community empowerment and that because that provides hope and we need the proportionate responses that have been talked about and we need um extreme climate science denial and ex- extreme vax opposition um we need that not to be just about thought about as just in terms of mental illness like some people sort of tried to diagnose mr trump etc and, and it's not just about mental illness the psychiatry but it's about the psychology of cults led by demagogues and how to retrieve people from them humanely. And that I think connects with what Tamara was saying about the role of psych of psychology um, <clears throat> in both communication and, and advocacy. Um, so I think we need all those factors. And it is, um, as Fiona was saying, a community wide and a wider community uh, type of approach that needs to go wider. And our imperative should be to go wider all the time.
2: Thanks, Ellen. Uh, You wove in Tamara's name there, so I'm going to pass to Tamara to tell us uh, a little bit about the resources APS has um, developed in collaboration with others.
1: Um, We have a series of um, focus resources for anyone in the public who has an interest in this. That includes things like talking with children about the environment, uh, coping with climate change distress if you're experiencing it, Uh, dealing with burnout um, and also some really great um, resources on what you can do and empowerment um, about climate change so broader than just how to deal with it's emotional but also what you can actively do to help in this space and um, we have some very strong um, position statements uh, both short and long versions so that you get all the detail if you need it Uh, we are certainly keen to see real change in this area and and the science of psychology really bring what it can to to the table around this okay
2: georgia uh uh what do you see as being important in promoting mental health uh, particularly for young people
6: yeah sure um i have three main things uh firstly i think i come from a health promotion background so all of these will be health promotion based but i think using nature as a health promotion resource solutions to ecological and youth mental health issues can be symbiotic. And so understanding the link between these is important for both preventing environmental degradation and then supporting youth mental health. And despite young people's concerns for the environment, their engagement with nature is relatively low. So supporting young people to develop the health literacy around the mental health benefits of connecting with nature is one way we could promote mental well-being. Um, secondly, fostering intersectoral collaboration. So, effective policy making in the climate health space requires a collaborative approach, approach with decisions made across all sectors. Um, so, recognising that most most public health challenges exist and could be improved outside of the health sector. Um, and lastly, engaging young people in generating solutions. So. Um, You know, eco-anxiety and climate grief are considered reasonable functional responses to climate-related losses, as it's been mentioned today, but they can be adaptive adaptive when channeled into productive and positive change. So strengthening and supporting young people's activism in the community may be an important approach to supporting their mental health and providing them with a sense of community and generating hope, um, whilst also maintaining pressure for action to mitigate climate change. I believe the the knowledge, the lived experience and advocacy efforts of young people should not be seen as just a symbol of hope, but instead they should be included in the co-design process of policy and interventions and be respected as valuable contributors in generating long-term sustainable climate solutions, as well as being an opportunity to support youth mental health at the same time.
2: Thanks, Georgia nature collaboration and um, supporting to bring forward the voices of young people is absolutely critical. I appreciate that. Carol, I haven't forgotten you. Can you tell us about some of the work? um, PSC, I think we can get down to to abbreviations, is doing to support people working on climate change.
5: Thanks very much, Rebecca. Um, We uh, run workshops for people who are working as activists or um, scientists or researchers in the climate space and we do that um, to address some of the issues I raised before about giving people a space to express the feelings that they carry and that they carry on behalf of all of us when they're working in this space day after day after day. And we really feel that the workshop gives it a chance to be heard, to um, to hear others, and to know that they're not alone and that um, that they can then form connections with each other if they work after from the same, um, Group working together, that they can have an ongoing connection with each other to talk about how they're feeling, to watch out for each other. Um, we also include in those workshops um, some work on self care and the importance of reflecting on the need to care for themselves and some giving them some practices in care for themselves. Um, and we find that people express that the benefit of just stopping um, as a group, especially who know each other from working together or people who are. Ju- drawn from diverse uh, groups around the community and that they feel the benefit and, of knowing that others feel as they do and that they have ongoing connections with others. And of course, we also remind people in those workshops and practice having um, little breakouts to connect with nature and see how healing nature can be in just even um, a very short connection. We also run uh, talks and interactive seminars And for those mental health practitioners who are out there, who um, may want to um, connect more deeply with this work so that they can respond to their clients or individuals, either individuals or groups that come to them, we're setting up a climate aware practitioners network and offering support to people to connect with the impact of climate change on themselves, so that they're able to respond to those that come to them for care, whether it's Um, as individuals or whether they're able to offer um, group um, support in their communities. So please have a look on our website for the Climate and we Practitioners Network to hear about our professional development opportunities.
1: So that was the Climate and Health Alliance expert panel discussion on climate change and mental health. Please look at the show notes while I'll include the report. Thank you for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week.